Welcome to the Multifamily Five, where industry experts provide raw information about how they are achieving success in the current market conditions. And now, your host, Dallas-based real estate broker, Mark Allen. And welcome to the Multifamily Five. Today, I'm excited to have Mr. Paul Peoples from Old Capital Lending. Paul, how's it going? Very great. Very good, Mark. How are you? Doing well. Doing very well. Excited. It's Friday. We work hard through the week and get a little downtime on the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an honor to be here with you on the Multifamily Five. Mark has done such a great job of kind of creating a pool of knowledge that uh, all that information goes to his head and then he pushes it out to people just like you to listen to some of the experiences that he has had selling or buying or working on behalf of buyers and sellers out there so he can give you the really where the rubber meets the road, where all the education that uh, he's gone through to kind of share what he thinks is valuable or what should be really valuable to you if you're thinking about getting into this business or even if you are in the business that uh, you, you listen to a professional. You know, not everybody has podcasts, not everybody shares their information. But what's good about Mark and his team is that uh, he's generous with all the information that uh, that he gives. And, and you know, so I'm very happy to be on the, the show with you today. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, well, thanks, Paul. Uh, we haven't talked debt financing in a long time, probably about a year. I can't remember who, who I last had on the podcast to talk about debt. But all that being said, let's get into this. I want to hear more about you. Will you let the listeners know more about your background and then also about your company, Old Capital? So... Thanks for the opening. So again, my name is Paul Peebles, P-E-E, B as in boy, L-E-S. And I've been a banker, a commercial real estate banker for 36 years, 36 years. This is, this is all I do is I finance large and small multifamily properties pretty much throughout the Southwest, you know, through the smile of the country from Arizona all the way to Florida. Sometimes we'll go up into areas like Chicago or Indiana or Kentucky, you know, some of these, these other places, uh, so if you know if there's a need for financing on apartments and it can be a property that's 20 or 25 years old or five years old or just looking to be built out of the ground, people come to us. So I've closed, as I said, 6,000 transactions. And so I think you'd be challenged to find anybody that has the depth, the knowledge of what our team has at Old Capital. So we are a debt provider. We are not the lender. We are a debt provider. You know, it's like going to the cheesecake factory and then you look at their menu and there's 1,500 things on the menu. And so we try to give people options of what they can, they should be doing for their financing. If you go direct, which is not a problem. If you go direct, you, you may only have one option. So we give customers options and we kind of explain and educate them to them about really what the pluses and the minuses are of the, the multiple different programs out there. So that's that's a little bit about what we do. We've uh, originated over a billion plus dollars last year. In multifamily debt, uh, we kind of do one out of every three apartment loans, and uh, we couldn't be successful without great guys like uh, Mark Allen and his team. So we certainly do appreciate his efforts. Absolutely, and that would make you one of the top lenders in the country. That's correct. It does, and so if you take a look at some of the list of, of lenders, we are in the top, and it's amazing that maybe the top fifteen or top twenty in the country. So there was a poll that came out, I think, in November that James Eng, the professor showed to me that uh, was talking a little bit about the number of transactions that we've done versus the market. And I'm talking about, you know, market being like CBRE or JLL. 
I mean, we're, we're one of the top lenders out there. So uh, that's enough to my horn. We're here not to talk about me. We're here to talk a little bit more about the market and try to get your folks updated a little bit about what we're seeing out there. Yeah. So Paul, what did you see just kind of end of last year going from 2020? It was flush agency market. And then uh, really we saw a ton of rent growth, I think, which stimulated, that was part of the reason which stimulated a lot of sales, but we had prices were jumping at the end of the year, 15 to 25%. So a lot of these deals didn't size well with agencies. So the bridge market was uh, very busy. So kind of what did you see, you know, as we got kind of mid last year into the end of the end of last year? So mid last year, and again, we're talking about mid June, July of 2021 to December 31st, 2021, Mm -hmm. the market itself was, is in a flux, so to speak. We have rents that are just going up to the ceiling, things that you wouldn't believe that would be possible five years ago or 10 years ago when we do renewals and then they come out at 16, 17% higher this year than they were for last year. And we have new leases that are coming up that are 10, 12, 13%, sometimes up to 20% on the renewals or on the uh, the, the new leases. Just unbelievable numbers that uh, we've seen for that period of time from July to end of, end of the year. Financing. Financing was, is not Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac during that period of time. Rents have gone up. Rents go up. Collections go up. Collections go up. NOI goes up. And now these properties are worth more. Debt becomes a lot more you know, challenging. And that uh, what we're doing is a lot more bridge financing. So I'd say 80, 85% for the entire year, 2021, our loans were bridge financing, usually through debt funds. And these are non-recourse transactions. So non-recourse bridge loans. I mean, recourse bridge loans would just like be bank loans, but non-recourse are debt funds. That's like uh, a few of us getting together and, uh, putting money out there to the street and we'll sign to do a loan for you if you want to buy this property and that uh, the borrower has the ability to do it as non-recourse. So tremendous amount of non-recourse debt. Now I'm starting to see a little bit of a pullback on the non-recourse bridge debt. And it's not because the lenders don't want to do it. It's because think through this a little bit is that um, if you go back to thinking how these loans work, how they work is that uh, a lot of non-banks, and let's just pick a couple of them, like Arbor or Greystone as an example, they're non-banks. So they have to get a line of credit money from somebody else. So they borrow that money, it's called a warehouse line, to fund their bridge loans. But after the loan closes, they have to take the, all that money and get it out in, into a securitization. These are, it's kind of like the CLO market. And the CLO market right now was really aggressive in terms of leverage and interest rates back about a year and a half ago. We were doing deals possibly up to 85%. And the CLO market, which again, who are the bond buyers of these loans after they've been sold and completed, these lenders are saying, hey, listen, we're more comfortable now at 80%, now at 75 And right now today, end of February going into March, they're getting more comfortable about 72.5% to 75%. So we're starting to see some of these bridge lenders not go with max loan dollars as they were you know, back about a year ago, but more comfortable about 72 to 75% leverage on the purchase price, but still probably doing 100% of the rehab dollars. And because short-term interest rates have gone up, and we're, we'll talk about that in a little bit, short-term interest rates have gone up. So we've seen the non-recourse debt fund bridge financing that so many people are using today, we're starting to see some of those rates go up too, where we would probably get 
three and a quarter to three and three quarters rates last year. The we're starting to see it's uh, three and three quarters up to four and a quarter uh, percent. And a lot of the lenders are like, uh, we don't want to do this five million dollar, ten million dollar deals. You know, give us twenty million dollar deals. Uh, these bridge loans. So we're starting to see people get out of the smaller markets of the loan sizes or the sales prices of these properties and getting up to 15, 20, or $30 million. That's their minimum loan size that they will finance. And so if you have a deal that's between, say, $1 million up to $5 million, that's probably not going to be a debt fund, probably not going to be a debt fund, you know, non-recourse. It's probably going to be back to what it was five years ago, 10 years ago, that could be just a bank bridge loan, a recourse bank bridge loan. So we can get leverage up to 70 or 75% on these smaller deals, but you're going to probably have to negotiate to get the lowest recourse piece possible. There's like a partial recourse or only exposure is for 25%, not the full thing. So that's where you, you talk with your lender and you kind of negotiate that back and forth. So again, overview, non-recourse bridge loans, they were very popular from middle of last year to the end of, of this of 2021. Today, going into February and March, still available. They're going great guns, but the leverage is getting cut back a little bit and the interest rates are going up a little bit. So just know that uh, that's where the future lies. And remember, these bridge loans are not permanent loans. They are like three years. So it makes you have the ability to, to acquire the property, fix the property up, and be in a position hopefully to sell it within three years. Now, if you can't sell within the third year, they'll probably give you two-year, one-year extension. So two one-year extensions. So year number four and year number five, you may get the same interest rate. You may not, but they typically, as a hammer, they don't want you to be on there for very long. So they'll go to amortizing. They'll have you, you know, maybe pay additional fee for every year. They may have you pay additional cap an interest rate cap, which is like an insurance policy to make sure that your interest rate doesn't jump up by very much during the period of time. So they're trying to get you out of that bridge loan so they can reuse that money to, to another transaction. So it's not a permanent loan, so you got to execute your plan. So that's the one thing that I'm, I'm seeing that I would be very cautious on is just know that this is, you get into a bridge loan, it's not a permanent loan. You got to execute your plan and be in a position to get out of it as quickly as possible. All right, great. So that's the past. That's kind of the present. How does that affect pricing? Or how do you think it affects pricing? And then how does that create challenges for buyers? So a couple of different things, a couple of questions in there. So present, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which have been the backstop for the multifamily industry for, for 75 years. And they've done a great job. They look at they're not a bridge lender. That's not what they do. They have a, a debt coverage ratio that we have to honor that they're looking for stabilized properties. They're not looking for properties that are that you're trying to acquire to push rents up after you do the rehab in the future. They look at the financials through a rear view mirror. So if you're driving down the, the, the street, you look in your rear view mirror and you see all the financials, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for last month. They're looking for three months ago. They're looking for nine months ago, a year, 18 months ago. They're looking for financials historically. The bridge lenders are the ones that are looking through your front window when you're driving the car of what you think you're going to be able to do it today after you do the rehab and then what the future is going to look like three years from now. So they're forward-leaning uh, lenders into the deal. Now, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac is again, historical financials. So if that property 
today is not what it's going to be in the future. They're only relying upon today. So because of that, because of that 125, because of the stabilized cash flow they're only looking at, you may only get, be able to get a 55 or 60% leverage loan with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, because it's not going to take into account all that rehab and all the goodwill that you're going to put into that property in the future to try to get rents up from X to X plus $150 a unit more per month. So that's where these, these bridge loans come in. But again, like I said, the bridge loans are not, they're not a permanent loan. You have to execute that plan within three years. And if you don't, you may get two one-year extensions to it. But if you don't, the lender's going to want to make, kind of figure out what's going on and you're going to have to kind of figure out what's going on. So even if you get a bridge loan today and you get it at 75% leverage, but Fannie Mae's only 55% and you can't get those rents up to get you the higher NOI when it comes to the time to refinance that property or for somebody to buy the property from you and they're going to look to Fannie Mae, they may get that same 55%. In your case, if you're looking to refinance to take that loan off the bridge lender's books, because now they're, you know, they're coming down on you hard. They want you to pay them off. And if rents don't have not gone up and cap rates have not uh, continued to decline or compress and cap rates are now expanded and rents are not going up like what you projected to get the higher NOI in year three, you're going to be faced with a problem. There's going to be a deficit between what you owe on the property and what you can get through either a sale or Fannie Mae on the backside. And so that's what I'm concerned with is that if you can't execute your plan by year three or year four, you're going to have to have a capital call to your limited partners and try to walk through and talk through what is going on and what you're going to do. So lender at all during this period of time is that they're figuring out how good of an operator you are. So the concern is that uh, when you have a loan that has a DACA or a lockbox, that means the lender can come in and sweep your cash flow out of the property. And that's one thing that a lot of borrowers don't understand is that it is not so much you that controls your cash flow. It's going to be the lender. And so they're going to actually do, you know, some checks every year to kind of figure out, are you getting towards your goal that having the higher NOI in the future? And so that's another concern that I have. And so, you know, it all goes back to make your plan follow your plan, execute, and be able to get out of this, that uh, bridge loan as quickly as possible. Yeah. I had a deal recently that actually Old Capital is financing. We haven't closed the, the property, but in contract negotiations or really LOI negotiations, the seller, who not all that sophisticated, said you know they wanted the, the buyer to sign a loan application within, I think it was five or 10 days. I can't remember. but And he was going to give them the 90-day period. Again, not all that sophisticated, but just kind of talk a little bit about timing. I had to have a conversation with him like, look, you know, the, the mortgage broker is going to go out once he's got to have a signed contract and then he's going to go out to the market. And being that it's a 75 unit property, you know, the debt market or specifically the bridge market is not, you know, flush with different lenders. So it's going to be a little more challenging to finance, but the buyer, you know, is obviously motivated to close as soon as possible. And I think what he did was just gave them a 60-day close with a 15-day extension and, and kind of dropped that um, signed the loan application within five or 10 days. But just talk a little bit, like what's going on as far as timing goes and how should buyers structure, structure deals or what should they expect? And talk both. You know, I don't know if it differs from small deals to larger deals. 
let's talk about uh, small deals and large deals. And small deals, again, are from uh, in the debt fund markets between, say, $5 million up to about uh, 7 to $10 million, some, somewhere in there. That's kind of a small, small market. Larger deals are, you know, $10, $15 million up to about 65 or $70 million. And so if you uh, take a look at the small market, you know, look at your right hand and see that there's five fingers on it. Well, that's probably how many lenders are going to do non-recourse debt funds in that marketplace. Now look at all your fingers and toes on both hands and in your feet. That's how many people are going to do, as an example, on the large market. There's going to be a lot more lenders that are going to do the lot larger transactions and the smaller transactions. So if it's a, if it's a 75 unit deal or if it's a you know, 100 unit deal, that's going to probably be on the smaller market side. Or, or it could be, you know, medium size between the the small and the and the market. So you, you you're not going to have that many people to go to. But be flexible. If the borrower again, 85% of our transactions are are being done through the bridge side. The bridge side takes 60 to 75 days. 60 to 75 days from the point of application to the point that the money's sitting at the title company. So it's a longer process. It is more expensive process for the buyer because they have to pay. Sometimes attorney fees could be, where Fannie is bringing me $16,000 to $20,000 attorney fees for the bridge loans, maybe $50,000, $55,000, $60,000 just for the attorney fees that represents the lender, not for the buyer. Then they have to pay a, a cap rate, which is like an insurance policy to make sure the interest rates remain the same from what the period of time was from the beginning to up to say year three. We call it a strike price, making sure the interest rates don't just jump up on these short terms real quickly. So bridge loans are much more expensive. They're much more, they have to be underwritten fully to have the, the underwriter accept, accept what you're saying, what you're, you're telling them. They have to believe that by year three, you have been able to move rents up from X to X plus $150, $200 a door. So that, that, that's going to take uh, maybe not one lender to, look at it, but you may have to have five or six or seven lenders to kind of figure out if that works. And so uh, just if you're a seller, be flexible. And I'll tell you the reason why I say if you're a seller, the bridge loan programs are not for the buyers. They are for the sellers. The Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are for the buyers, but the bridge loans are for the sellers because the sellers are wanting, demanding to get that higher price. Well, if they, if the only thing, if we didn't have that product around and, and Fannie Mae was the only one that was able to do it, you couldn't get that higher price. So the bridge loans are for the sellers and the sellers are trying to get, have somebody put down 25 or 30% versus putting down 45 or 50% to get a, a Fannie Mae loan. So I beg, beg the sellers to be flexible in their timing. And, you know, let's, let's see if we can get the deal closed within, you know, 60 to 75 days, but that's truly from the period of time that we start the application, money is pushed over to the time it actually is going to close. So that, so that's a realistic number. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about that uh, the bridge market is really carrying the multifamily market right now. It's kind of propped up on uh, the, the bridge market, but not that it, it would uh, just disappear and go away, but the terms could significantly change. I mean, we're seeing terms obviously change like you discussed from both leverage and interest rates, but that's interesting thought. What about Paul? Any lessons learned just and not from yourself and doing deals last year, but as you kind of work through, obviously you guys are doing a lot of loans. 
Are there any deals that you can think of where either either or a buyer or seller, any any lessons learned that you'd like to share with the audience? A couple of different things. And, and there's a lot of lessons. And I, you know, again, I started, I started in this business when interest rates were at 16% on the homes and 21% in prime rate. So how long ago was that? <laughs> so if I see interest rates where they are today at 2% or 3%, uh, that's free money in my book. But we've had a lot of people come into this, this, this business, which They've never been exposed to in the last two or three years. They were IT professionals or they were, they were attorneys or they were doctors or they worked in the warehouse or whatever they were doing. Now they're syndicators into the business. So they really have no idea what the history is on this business. And maybe they've never seen a downside because this, this market is on absolute fire, but markets don't always stay this hot. They do tend to have a backside. And I don't know what that backside is. We thought it was COVID. Prior to that, we thought it was the agencies trying to go from public to private, and they would not be so aggressive in how big they wanted the, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And, and people were thinking about, uh, was it going to be partial recourse in some of these loans back about four or five years ago? And so, uh, and, you know, I've seen, it, I've seen the days where the subprime on the single family side where you know people that uh, you know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the, and the single family homes, if you go back to 2006, 2007, 2008, where you know they had a box, and if you fit in that Fannie Mae box, you got yourself a home loan. Well, a lot of people didn't fit in that Fannie Mae box. They didn't uh, have uh, they had income that wasn't uh, recordable, they had tax returns that didn't make sense. They were trying to buy a $250,000, $300,000 house with $20,000 worth of income because they were you know, hiding all kinds of money or not hiding, but uh, they were writing it off or depreciating. But the banks who are trying to get the highest amount of income for you and you were giving them the lowest amount of taxable income for their IRS, that was a, that was a big piece. So, they, so the market created these uh, you know, ninja loans or Nina loans or 100% financing, you know, no income, no asset. You know, 100% financing for rental properties, and uh, in some places up Michigan, they had 125% financing on some of these properties. Find a car in your garage, and it wasn't the bankers, it wasn't Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac so much doing it. It was, it was kind of these debt funds that just came out of the ground on the single family side, because the markets were able to push that debt and sell sell these American home loans to Iceland or someplace in Europe or South America, and there, you know, everything in. United States has always gone up. So why would you think it was going to go down? So just buy the yield. So I see tremendous amount of parallels between the subprime single family market and also the subprime bridge lender market that we're seeing today is mm-hmm. that you have to think in your head, is the market price correctly to get these low rates that you have to turn this deal around within three years? And, that, and again, we're at max occupancy on these properties. I mean, we're at we're not, not at 90%. We're at 96, 97, 98% on a lot of these well-run properties. So if you have to do your repairs to the property, it may not be this year, you know, 12 months. It may be next year, the year after. And then you have to make those rents even higher. So when that loan does come to a maturity, you've got to be paying that, that loan off. And then you have to make sure that interest rates don't jump up. You got to make sure the cap rates don't go, go up. You got to make sure that you know, the economy continues to do well. So there's a lot of risk. There's some risk that I would advise people on. Just you know, get a, get into a bridge loan, but make sure you execute your plan 
as fast as possible. And, and then you don't have to worry about the, the, the downside or the backside of the, of the mountain itself. So that's one of the things that uh, we cautious would be cautiously telling people. And again, I will tell you that I have been wrong more times than I've been right. <laughs> and that if you've listened to me for the last three years, you are, uh, you are uh, in, in executed things I told you to do. You are poorer than if you did not listen to me. <laughs> if you did it by yourself and you, you just said, I'm just going to continue to buy. And the people that have continued to buy, they've done fantastic. But as my father would always say, is that 75 attaboys does not equal one oh shit. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I come from the philosophy is that we want to keep that oh shit as uh, nebulous as, as, as possible, not, not make it as big as, as possible to wipe out, wipe, wipe out all your attaboys in, in one bad transaction that you get into with some bad partners. So stay on top of that. Another thing that I think is, is people is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are coming down and they've done this since day one. They want to make sure that the, the owner operators, this is the guys that own these properties, the limited partners that have invested in these deals, that the collateral remains good. If you say that you're going to put $600,000, $700,000 on the property, put that money into the property, put the money back into the collateral for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, put it into that, that, into that building. If you think you can just not do that and that property is going to stay, you know, good and solid, you are absolutely wrong. And all of a sudden you'll get a knock on your door and it'll be a letter that comes in from your servicer. If you've done a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan, or even a kind of a bridge loan that says, Hey, listen, you remember those repairs that you failed to do? Well, we're going to make sure you do it. So can you next 30 days wire us $700,000? So we will then put that money into the account. So all of a sudden you'll have a capital call for, from, the servicer on behalf of Fannie Mae, because they did a property condition assessment report on that property to determine that it wasn't in good shape, that, that there was a risk of health and safety problems, whether it's a rail system around the pool or steps going up to the, the uh, second floor unit. So they, you know, they're really going to, they're coming down hard on these operators that uh, have just been kicking the can down the road and haven't tried to maintain the property to its best bet. And so, you don't want to find yourself on a thing called the A-check. And the A-check with Fannie Mae is that you haven't been keeping the collateral in good condition, and they probably are not going to lend you any more money in the future. So you find yourself on that death store. So it's almost, it's, it's, you can get off of it, but you're probably not going to do business with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac if you can't get off that list. And it's tough to get off the list. So don't try to get on that list. And a lot of people today, and I'm, when I say a lot of people, you know, if you take a look at, you know, out of a hundred people that have, have bought properties and have done Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, I would say three or 4% have found themselves on lists they can't go forward. So don't find yourself on that. Don't be that guy to be on that list because that's, that's going to kill your business being a syndicator and you might as well go back to being an IT professional. So that's, that would be, uh, be my, my advice on that. Yeah, that's great. So we have just a few minutes left. I'm interested to hear a case study. Can you share a deal that you closed either, you know, in the last year or maybe it's, you know, in the works right now for closing uh, shortly, just how the lender viewed the sponsor and the deal, maybe what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, just, you know, a, a general case study. Couple of them. I mean, we're we're all over the board. You know, we, we do so much business. Uh, you know, it's 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 tough. I mean, we're doing a senior living, uh, active senior living property. 
over in Irving, 154 doors. It was just built. And so uh, our borrowers coming in there, uh, buying this property without having any tenants in the property. So, you know, uh, what type of a loan can you get where there's no income? Well, this one's going to be, you're going to have to put significant cash into the deal. And we found a lender that had no problems with that. We would do a thing called an interest reserve. So during the period of time that you're leasing out the property, and usually these senior living centers take 18 to 24 months to get a bunch of tenants in there, because when they go in there, they never leave. (laughs) And so it, it takes them a while to get in there. But during that period of time, we don't have enough income to carry the loan that's against the property that we put on. So these these buyers were selling a property in the area and they were going to put uh, in an exchange, they were going to put all that money into the deal. And our leverage point on that deal was like 55 or 60%. That's not a problem. We probably could go up to 70%. Again, this was a kind of a bank bridge loan. At 60%, it became, it was non-recourse. At 70%, it was a little bit of recourse in the deal. But that's just a you know a specialty property that had no income coming in, and we had kind of the same thing on another one up uh, on Frankfurt, 184 doors. Guy bought it from the the developer. The developer tried to lease the lease the units out, and it, it was difficult for him to try to do it because he's a he builds properties. He doesn't lease them out, and so it took them almost 12 months to get up to 33 percent occupancy. Wow. And so our buyer who said that, you know, there's an opportunity at this, I'll buy it here. If you buy it at your price that you want to sell it for, if you let me come in and let me manage the property from the period of time that we signed the PSA, the purchase sale agreement to the time we closed. And that's what he did. And with his, his might and his force and his background and his experience, he took it from 33 up to 85% before we closed. Wow. This was a matter of like 90 days or 60 days. So, and these were real tenants. So some people have skills to build stuff and some people have skills to manage and find good tenants on these properties. And, you know, you just have to be a little clever on how to do some of these things. Mm-hmm. Now I, I could talk you know, a tremendous amount. I remember a couple of years ago, we did a, a, a bunch of fourplexes that were a big apartment building over in Irving, Texas, just, you know, between Dallas and Fort Worth. One guy came in there and he saw these 15 fourplexes all plotted like a big apartment building. He says, I don't want to have these as, as a big apartment building. I'm going to break these fourplexes into pieces and I'm going to sell the fourplexes. I'm going to, I'm going to collapse, crush the pool. I'm going to sell these fourplexes as single family homes and sell it to just residential investors. And so he took a, like a one and a half million dollar purchase. This, again, this was years ago and made it into two and a half to three million dollar property by just thinking outside the box that he saw this, all these fourplexes on one street that was being operated and was originally built as an apartment building. Mm-hmm. He took it out from being an apartment building. He collapsed the, the whole apartment building thinking, and he sold them as individual fourplexes to a bunch of investors that said, you know, I, don't, you know, I know you bought them at, at uh, 125 or 150 door. I'll pay 250 or $300,000 per fourplex on that deal. So, wow. you know, just you know, interesting stuff at how, how you can become clever it's just not apartments. It uh, is, is, you know, you, you talk with guys like Mark and his team to get ideas how to structure these deals that, you know, some maybe some people are not, haven't thought about that. And so, uh, you know, you're lucky to be on, on uh, a great team that has lots of experience with Mark's group. And so, uh, you know, I would encourage you to give him a call and, and listen to what a little bit about what his experience is and how to 
structure these deals. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, Paul. So Paul, obviously, if you don't know, has the old Capital Podcast, which gets how many? Listen, 60,000 a month? 60,000 downloads a month. And yeah. we've been doing, you know, I don't know if we're better or worse than anybody else, but we've just been doing it longer. So we have a lo- bigger database of people that listen to us. And, you know, it, it's, uh, we, we kind of celebrate uh, a little bit about what's going on in the market, but we're also a realist. And we want to tell you that sometimes there's flashing red lights out there and just be careful out there. You know, it always reminds me of like uh, Hill Street Blues. You got the old sergeant in front of the, all the, the men and the women that uh, are coming in. And his last thing he would tell everybody before they went out to the street to, to talk to all the, the citizens, be careful out there. And that's kind of where we, that's kind of my, my feeling is that I, I just want to make sure that you know, before you spend $100,000, just be careful out there and talk with the professionals that have done this once or twice or a hundred times, like Mark and his team, that, uh, you know, you've worked too hard for this money. Just make sure that uh, you're doing the right things going into to a transaction. Yeah. And um, Todd and I, Todd Franks has been in the business for 22 years, so not near as long as Paul, but him and I often talk about, hey, did you hear, you know, this on the old Capital podcast? So there's a ton of good content, whether you're a new to the business or you've been in the business for over 20 years. So I encourage everyone to listen to that. But Paul, what's the best way for the listeners to reach out, learn more about you or get a you know term sheet or a quote on a deal? Yeah, just oldcapitalpodcast.com or oldcapitallending.com. Again, I'm Paul Peebles, National Underwriter for Old Capital. So just you know, reach out and uh, let's, let's build a relationship. And I'll tell you what I see, and, and uh, we'll you know we'll we'll guide you what we perceive is the right way. And and don't forget, uh, you know, go on to YouTube and look at James Eng, who's one of my colleagues. He does a great uh, YouTube videos once a month and kind of explaining about what's going on. And you want to get as much information right now because it's critical where these prices are that uh, you're not making any mistakes. Awesome. Well, thanks, Paul. Appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast and look forward to seeing you soon. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks, Mark.